Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm Simona Kastrikam and you're listening to the Binary Busting broadcast on 3CR Community Radio 855am. Crew in the Air would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations people listening to this broadcast. We recognise their unceded sovereignty and that a treaty was never signed. So you're listening to Queer in the Air. I critically engage queer commentary with an interest in the intersection of queerness with other experiences of marginalisation. And this show is presented by peers on the LGBTIQA plus spectrum. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter via the handle Queer in the Air and listen to our podcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash Queer in the Air. Today's show may contain descriptions and discussions on mental health and illness, othering and queer phobia that may be distressing to some listeners. So if this is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or QLife on 1800 184 527 or contact your state-based service. For Trans Day of Visibility, I'll be presenting a special edition of Queer in the Air as part of 3CR's Binary Busting Broadcast, which is a dedicated seven hours of radio programming centering on the trans and gender diverse and non-binary experiences, voices and narratives, uh, mixed in with um, music and interviews and other topics that really relate to this particular Day and the visibility of trans and gender diverse people. So over the next hour, you'll hear discussions with Hunter Dillon, a, tr- a queer trans mask person, tattooist and sex worker with chronic invisible illnesses who lives in Nam, Melbourne. And then around 3.30pm, I'll be speaking with Malika Mfalme, a queer non-binary mixed race African Australian person of colour who is a singer-songwriter living on Gadigal land. And we'll be speaking about queer and or cultural identities in the context of intersectionality, of disability, illness, ableism, visibility and representation, and how those overlapping identities are navigated. So here is my first interview, which I conducted with Hunter Dillon. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am digital and streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. So I identify as a queer, trans, disabled person, and I also have dabbled in sex work. Um, I have CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, as well as ADHD, OCD, and PTSD. Uh, PTSD has its own list of symptoms. Um, so I'm basically just tired and sore all the time. And then on extra special occasions, I crash, and that usually lasts a few days. Um, but I really just have to navigate what I do with my time so that I can be as healthy as possible. And when you talk about crashing for a few days, can you explain what that means for someone that's not familiar with that term in relation to sure. your illness? Yeah, sure. So when I crash, it feels like I have a really bad illness, like I get body cramps, I get very physically sore, I can't really move. Um, I don't have any physical strength whatsoever. The the illness itself is, for me, triggered by emotional stress. Um, so the fact that I also have PTSD makes the CFS crashes worse because uh, when your nervous system is going on high for such a long period of time, it kind of depletes and suddenly you have no dopamine, you have no energy, you can't even think, you can't recall any information. It's like a, a brain fog and it can last anywhere, you know, from a day. For some people it can last months. I'm lucky and that mine usually passes within a few days. 
but for a lot of people, they're bedridden for, for weeks or months, and the depression that comes with that is, you know, also excruciating. So let's talk about that a bit more. So how do these chronic illnesses, so you have CFS, which gives you the crashes, but there's also OCD and the PTSD. Mm-hmm. How does that affect you in relation to your other identities, your queer identity, your trans identity and so forth? I think that it it's intersectional because I'm juggling trying to have a community with queer people um, whilst also being super restricted in the types of activities that I can participate in. And so it's really hard to be a part of a community when you're sick and tired all the time. And other than maybe social networking, there's really no space for people that have chronic illness to get together and spend time together. We're all stuck to our beds. Um, So it's very difficult to be a part of a queer community or a trans community and maintain friendships with people from those communities when you can't get out of bed. And maybe there could be events that were just like laying in bed, something super low-key where people just watch films and people are aware that, you know, no one here has any spoons, so let's all just sit around together. For people out there that don't understand what spoons mean, can you explain what that means in relation to chronic illness and maybe maybe give an example of how you use that in your daily life? Okay, well, um, yeah, so I have to assert a lot of boundaries with the people that I'm friends with. They all know that I have a chronic illness. And for me personally, it's kind of like how much energy you have left. For me, on a daily basis, I have to think, okay, I've got till 2 p.m., to do activities and then usually I nap from two till five because if I don't nap I have one of the crashes that I mentioned earlier in the evening so I sleep every day for many hours throughout the middle of the day and then that gives me more energy to then do a few more extra things in the evening so it's a juggle of social uh, mental and physical really that you go okay well what what social things do I need to do today? I need to see this person. Maybe I need to meet this new person. That's going to be uh, a high-level activity. So maybe I won't have any physical energy for anything else that day. Or if I have to ride to uni one day and go to class for three hours, I'm probably, I can't make plans for the rest of that day because I, I won't have any energy left. And it's about constantly juggling these activities to be like, well, what's the most important thing that I need to get done? And a lot of that means that you leave out social things because, you know, you have to make phone calls, you have to go shopping, you have to cook dinner. So all of these take away little bits of the energy that I have and then I'm just left with nothing. I see what you mean in relation to the restrictive nature of the illness and the way you need to prioritise what some people would view as sort of administrative activities and therefore yeah. you're stripped away of those opportunities to to spend time with community and friends and a sort of yeah. broader sense of self-worth and belonging. And, and this ties in really well with the follow-up question that I want to ask, like the sense of belonging and how you feel you belong in typical and non-typical queer spaces in relation to accessibility and inclusion in these spaces. Can you give a bit more information on that? So typically, uh, I think that queer spaces are provided for queer people. Um, They don't necessarily think about the other disabilities that queer people might have. It's often just left out of the equation. So when I think about trying to be a part of a community, I feel like I don't have the same agency to attend things or be a part of things because a lot of it is maybe nightlife, maybe it's, you know, there's a lot of people in one space and these types of things I feel like I can't go to because it's just too much of an overload for me as a neurodiverse person. So when I, when I go to events, I am aware that the events aren't created for people like me. Uh, so I have to be really picky 
in the events that I choose to go to. Uh, and I need to, I often will spend time hyperfixating on looking at previous photos from the event so I can look at things like what are the people wearing that are attending the event, how many people are in that room, um, so that I can in some ways navigate how I look or essentially make myself invisible <laughs> within that space. How can I make myself not seen within that space so that if I do you know, have a moment where I'm having really bad anxiety, that I'm not the centre of attention, that people aren't all looking at me. Um, so I feel that even when I'm welcome in a space, I, ha I purposefully make myself as invisible as possible so that I'm protected in some fashion because the anxiety is so bad, I feel like it's physically noticeable at times. And then that, you know, I draw blanks. I, I can't communicate with people. I can't think on the spot. I've got nothing to say to anyone. So a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that there's, you know, so many people within the room, maybe the strobe light, and the combination of all these things just isn't catered for neurodiverse people. And so it can be very confronting and uh, scary. So often you just don't go. And then you're excluded. And then you kind of, I suppose when, when you are a person that is neurodiverse, when you are in these situations, you usually, beforehand, you have this idea of what your social script will be and sort of predetermined yeah. sort of um, encounters you might have and how you might approach them. So when your social scripts are blown out the window, I can see why you feel like you're frozen and you can't interact with someone. Totally. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in therapy um, and I've learned that, that I can have certain phrases that I just have on hand for when I draw a blank. You know, just certain questions like, oh, how was your day today is enough to maybe deflect so that people are no longer looking at me and they're looking at the person who's speaking. And so it was like uh, a thing that I needed to learn was like, hey, learn, have this little script that you just have, you know, in the back of your head at all times and they're your go-tos, that whenever you draw a blank, at least you've got these, you know, five different things that you can say so you don't look like a deer in headlights. I suppose how does the queer community understand the intersections of your identities? I think I'm lucky in some ways that I've gotten to a point in my life where a lot of the people that I spend time with are also members of the same intersectional minority groups that I am. It's much easier to communicate your needs with people that also have their own needs. So nobody seems to be put out by each other's boundaries or, or requests. But there was definitely a long period of my life where I was pre-diagnosis for CFS and... I didn't understand why I was so tired. I didn't understand why it made me feel sick after I spent time with people that I cared about, my friends, my family. Um, I didn't really get it, and so I didn't have any language to explain any of those things. And then your community thinks that you're just, you don't care or, or that you're just cancelling all the time, and they don't really get why you can't go to the thing with all of your friends and, you know, because they don't understand if I go, it means I can only go for a certain amount of time. Everything is on a schedule for me and people didn't really understand that for a very long time. And so they would just think I was being selfish or, or rude or bossy or controlling. And especially as a transmasculine person, that can come across as being abusive. If you've got, you know, all these limitations and rules that you need to set for the people that are in your life, they can take that in a very different way if they don't understand why those things are in place. So there's a huge gap within that part of my identity and the rest of the community. If people had more understanding about why people act the way they act and why, you know, why Hunter has to leave after two hours or, you know, why does Hunter never come on these long road trips? They, they think it's about them. People naturally think, oh, maybe they don't like me or maybe they just don't want to hang out with me. And so then you end up losing friends and you lose community and 
it's been it's been a gift to get a diagnosis and an understanding because it, it allows for behaviours to be accepted. Another thing that we wanted to speak about, because we had a pre-interview and you were speaking about like opportunities and self-agencies, and I suppose what I wanted to know is how you access and navigate public and private spaces, which also can include learning spaces and interpersonal and interdependent relationships and friendships. Yeah, well, I go to La Trobe, actually. I've only just started uni. I started this year. And I've been pleasantly surprised um, on an institutional level there's been uh, a lot of conversations about people's pronouns at the start of class and in introductions, um, which never was a thing back, you know, when I went to school. Um, there's lots of access to unisex bathrooms. Um, the staff seem to have at least had some form of pre-educational teachings before I've arrived there. So it's really easy to not have to navigate my gender in that space, which is very different. Because uh, in most institutional spaces, say work, uh, I was a barista for a long period of time. Um, I was stealth at work about my gender and about my sexuality also. Um, because people make jokes and they think it's funny and they think it's appropriate to ask you inappropriate questions and... Sometimes it's just easier to not say anything at all. Uh, and so it's nice to be able to be in a place where people ask you, what's your pronouns? Oh, cool. And it's just nothing. And then there's no explanation. There's, there's nothing more. And so that's been really great. Um, also, as far as Latrobe's concerned, they have a great mental health department or, or disability department. Um, and so I'm able to get extensions, I'm able to get, uh, I guess, a bit more assistance than maybe other students get. Um, they take a little bit more time out to explain things to me. Um, I only have to say, like, oh, I have ADHD, sorry, I can't recall information. And they're like, oh, no worries, here's a prompt for you. Like, they're kind of, they just seem more aware that, um, that people learn differently and that people's brains work differently and... And, yeah, it's been a really great surprise. They also have, like, lots of elevators. <laughs> so I don't have to walk up and down flights of stairs and, you know, from one side of the uni to the other. So that's been really good for my physical body. And on that, let's talk about mm-hmm. your experiences in healthcare with clinicians. What has that been like? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> um, there's, this is, a, I guess, a really big question because... I'm 35 now, and I've been on testosterone since I was 24. Right now, my biggest hurdle that I'm facing is NDIS. It is an absolute joke. They don't seem to um, to accept any of the letters that I've provided that you know um, indicate how in how I suffer and in which ways. Um, they've made it very difficult. And I've been denied many times and had to appeal many times and I'm still appealing and I've heard that it can take a year to a year and a half before they will, you know, approve you and that it's set up essentially for you to fail and that the sicker you are, the harder it is for you to actually get access to the the help that you need. It's just not set up for people that are queer and also disabled so they just expect you to be able to go and see any psychologist or any psychiatrist but as a person who's queer and a sex worker and a polyamorous person finding a psychologist that gets all of that and doesn't think oh you're a person who just hates yourself and that's why you're a sex worker or you know, you don't feel that you're worthy of love and that's why you're polyamorous. Like, those theories and feelings being put on you can be very dangerous. Um, And I've had to go through countless experiences of that to land on somebody who I was able to, you know, actually be honest and open about all of the different intersectionalities of myself and have them be able to help me. And then, unfortunately... They resigned after 11 months, and so I'm still I'm now back on the hunt looking 
for both a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Um, and NDIS just think, oh, just go to anyone. Um, but they don't realise that just going to anyone is traumatic. It is damaging and it leaves scars on you that you can't heal from. <laughs> and and that's all from a medical profession, you know. So I don't understand why there's not more training, why the medical professionals not understand these intersectionalities, why are they not trained on what it is to be transgender. I shouldn't be having, having to explain what transgender means to my clinicians. I had a cervical cancer scare. Now, as a trans person uh, getting surgery on, you know, their genitals and their uterus and their cervix, and it's very um, distressing already. Uh, and I thought, you know, I'll just go in, I'll get the surgery done, and I'll get out, and everything's going to be fine. And I amped myself up for it, and I, I got into the hospital, and I had about two hours to wait before I went under the knife, and I had to spend the first half an hour of my time there um, being what felt like accosted with questions about my genitals, about my sexual identity, about my transition, about the tattoos that were on my body and how they maybe don't have the same body type that I now have and how funny that is, you know, that they're stuck on me forever. And um, I, th these were questions coming from the nurse that was sitting with me whilst I was waiting to go in. Um, it got to a point where the questions became so intrusive and intense that I started to disassociate. And for about an hour and a half, I sat there disassociating, uh, pretending to be asleep, whilst not thinking about the fact that I was about to go in to surgery, you know, a time in which I should have been able to sit, plant, like, you know, preparing myself for this big surgery I was about to have. I, I was forced disassociate from due to the fact that this person felt entitled enough to ask me whatever questions they wanted. I became just this experiment, this thing that was laying on the table and felt horrible. Thank you for sharing that experience with us and feeling open and comfortable to share that because that is an ongoing issue for trans and gender diverse people. So I'd like to end with a question that connects back to one of your answers. You were speaking in relation to not engaging with community because of not having enough spoons or the energy or the capacity to go out and how that has affected your relationships outside in the community. How can we interact better with people who are neurodivergent and have chronic illnesses? How can we be better allies and, and better community members? That's a great question. There's probably more conversations that need to take place. I think that's the answer. I, I don't have the answer, but I imagine that if people were to have more conversations with, you know, people like me, like this, then people might understand. I, I guess uh, it makes me think about um, people with hearing disabilities, for example, they may provide an Auslan interpreter, but we're kind of stuck in this cycle of people going, well, what if there's no one deaf here anyway? Then we've just gotten this person out here for nothing. And, you know, they're mostly not deaf anyway, so we may as well not get one. Um, and then that creates, you know, well, no deaf people are going to come because they can't access the thing. Um, and so it's this cycle of, like, People go, oh, we, sh we don't really need it because maybe only one or two people here will, will need it. Well, but if you made it accessible, then maybe 50 people will come <laughs> that need that thing. And so how can people help create spaces for, for me and for other people like me? We'll have conversations with us and say, well, what would you need at a party? If I was going to have a party and this is what the party was going to be, what would be helpful for you? You know, and then if 10 people have the same idea, include that in your event. Yeah, maybe just, a, you know, I'd like to party too. I want to go to things too. I, 
I want to be involved and and it'd be really nice if if there were just heaps more things that I could go to. That would be great because like just because I'm sick and just because I'm tired doesn't mean I don't want to party. Thanks to Hunter for speaking with me so candidly earlier this week um, about their experiences and illnesses and how that has been contextualised by their trans and gender identity and how that intersects also uh, with disability, visibility and ableism and all these notions that we find so often in mainstream queer media, how ableist bodies are put to the forefront and everyone else is basically forgotten. So it was a really beautiful and candid conversation. I'd like to thank Hunter again for joining me to have that conversation. You can see more of Hunter in the next imprint issue of Fast Fashion Magazine that launched on Friday night. This magazine centres on queerness and social responsibility as the norm and get more information via Fast Fashion's Instagram handle at fastfashion underscore magazine and that is spelled F-A-S-T F-A-S-H-U-N. After a few announcements, I'll be speaking with Malika Mfalme about their black and queer identity as it fits into discussions about trans and gender diverse visibility. But before that, you'll hear their beautiful track, Imagine If You Were Here. You're listening to Queer in the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming.
Hi, this is Them Patel, and you are listening to the Binary Busting Broadcast on 3CR. And if you've just tuned in, yes, you're listening to 3CR's Binary Busting Broadcast, <laughs> Tongue Twister, and the lead up to Trans Day of Visibility, which is happening at the end of the month. And you're listening to a special edition of Queer in the Air. My name is MV. And during the break, you heard the track Imagine If You Were Here by my next guest, Malika Melthame. And Malika is a queer non-binary mixed race, African-Australian person of colour and singer-songwriter living on Gadigal land. And they're joining me to speak about queer and cultural identities and how these overlapping intersectional identities are navigated. Thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you, MB. Um, how are you? I'm pretty good, pretty good. It's been a wonderful day, so I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of the broadcast. And how's things over there in Gadigal Land? I hear there's been a, a massive downpour of rain, and how are you coping with all of that? It's extremely wet, and I love it. I hate <laughs> the heat. So uh, I know I'm a bad African, but I really I don't like the heat. I don't like the humidity. So when it's raining and cold, I just crawl under my little blanket and enjoy. It's like that garbage song, I'm only happy when it rains. Literally, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks again for joining me this afternoon. So let's start off with a little bit about your identities. Tell tell us a little bit more about you and who you are and what you do. Um, Well, I'm African-Australian. My mom is Tanzanian and my dad is uh, from Sydney. I went to an American school in South Africa for about five years um, and kind of grew up all over the world, so hence the little American international accent. But I identify as trans non-binary and use they and pronouns, um, and I've been identifying as a lesbian for years, but that doesn't quite entirely encapsulate my attraction to the large variety of gender spectrum. But um, I guess the key is I, I simply love women. I'm a singer, songwriter, performer, um, and activist um, grieving and healing on Gadabalan. And tell us a bit more about the music that you perform and create. Um, well, I started writing music um, over a decade ago, um, and it kind of just started out as a coping mechanism. I was a young person living with, struggling with lots of mental illnesses um, and music was something that really spoke to me and I was able to deal with all that I was kind of living with through music um, and so that kind of turned my um, my coping mechanism into my career which I've been very lucky for but it also means my music is extremely heartfelt and um, very much um, very personal to me so right now I'm working on my current EP um, called Yasmin, which I'm really excited about. Well, we just got, I hope perhaps that we got a little bit of a taste of um, the music that you perform um, in the break with your track, which is really quite wonderful. I'm, I'm glad I chanced upon it. So let's Thank you. <laughs> sort of delve in a bit harder now and talk about how you feel that you belong in sort of typical and non-typical queer spaces when thinking about your intersection. So, you know, when you think about your uh, queer identity and your black identity and we're thinking about Mm. things like accessibility, uh, representation and and inclusion in these spaces. Good question. It's tough because it's quite rare to find POC queers. I I think it has to do with the shame that has been indoctrinated into our people from, you know, through colonization, et cetera. Um, but what I find POC queers to hang out with, we hang on for absolute dear life. Because um, most of the time, I spend a lot of time around my white queer friends who, who are wonderful and I love them. And they use my pronouns correctly and they understand my identity. Um, I think it's quite a bit painful when, I, when I'm around my black friends who I can speak to about so many different things. We can talk about culture and parenting and hair, but I don't talk about my gender and sexuality, um, which which is bad because it's a deeply integral part of myself and something that I find myself talking about constantly. So it, it does kind of feel like I'm closeting myself when I'm hanging out with my Black friends. And then I'm also recognizing that um, I'm always kind of hanging out with like 
white queers and it can feel like it can feel like I never really fit like my whole last existence of being mixed race and gender queer it's all about like fitting into these different boxes and it, I feel like um it's really hard to find community and people where all of your boxes fit into the same one I feel like sometimes I'm kind of splitting between two or three that sounds really exhausting how do you <laughs> How do you navigate that? How do you juggle all your different identities in these spaces? You said that it was difficult for you to be your true self with your black friends and that you, you didn't fill in and perhaps there was a semblance there of othering. There's a lot of code switching that goes on. Like, I'm, like the way that I kind of deal with it is, I don't know, it's a bit sad, but you know, when I'm hanging out sometimes with my like black friends, I'll just kind of not really talk about my queer identity. But it's okay because I can talk about being black, which is such an important part of my identity. And likewise, hanging out with my queer friends, it's like, well, I'm going to tell this black joke and none of you are going to laugh. Like me and my sister will be off in the corner thinking it's hilarious, but there's a room full of white people just uncomfortable. Um, (laughs) It can be, it can be quite interesting and difficult to navigate. um, But what's really been beautiful is just exploring more Sydney and finding more and more niche communities where like POC clears kind of exist and we can all kind of find each other. That's so nice that those opportunities can present themselves to you. And when we speak about, we've spoken about how you navigate um, black spaces. Uh, How about the queer communities? How do they understand the intersections of your identities? Well, I think the T is I don't associate with cis gay men, white men. I think I just, I simply avoid Oxford Street and that entire community because it is not for me, fam. Um, I have found a group of very, very sweet queer people who um, understand a lot about my identity stuff and, like, don't really quite understand my black side of things but they're always they're always they're always here to listen to it and be like uncomfortable and white guilted um which you know i'm very grateful and grateful for to have friends like this um i think um more of where i find um PSC clears and that where where that community is definitely um involved in lots of activism and stuff in Sydney and that's where I can really find um, those people that I absolutely connect with 100% on all these different levels. But um, kind of if I'm circling back to my own personal life and who I really spend all my time with, um, I was in a lot of different friendship groups um, when I first moved to Sydney about uh, four years ago. Um, And that really, really narrowed down just just before COVID in um, October 2019 uh, when my partner, Yasmin, um, tragically passed away. Um, And the friends that we kind of made together, um, this one group that I was part of, that that I was in and out of with all the other groups that I was in, um, they became my home family, my sanctuary, my safety. They straight up did not leave me alone. You know, as soon as Yasmin passed away, there was 20, 30, 40 queers in my, in my house at all times, um, watching movies and crying and grieving. Um, if it wasn't such a tragic and awful time, I mean, I feel like it would have been fun because we were all, we were all just spending time together and trying to get through the best that we could. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and also, uh, sorry for the loss of your partner as well. I mean, that's so tragic. And especially, I suppose, in the lead up to, you know, what was what we didn't know was, you know, COVID coming in and having that support of your queer family is so important. It sounds like you have a really mm. wonderful group of people there that uplift you and really support you and see you for who you are. So that's a really beautiful position to be in. And I suppose something else that you brought up there as well is is, is the grief that you, you that you were experiencing, and how do you how do you work through that grief? I think that lots of different cultures have different ways of coping with grief, um, and I think because I have so many different communities to draw from, I was I kind of pick and chose my favorite bits of grieving and ran mm-hmm. with it. You know, um, like I, I feel like. 
African people, people of color can be quite loud about grieving, whereas um, white people can be quite, you know, repressed and like, let's not feel this. So I was like, fuck that, let's not do any of that. Um, let's absolutely feel all of this the way that, you know, my ancestors would, you know. I cried and cried and cried and felt it and talked to anybody who would listen. If an Uber driver asked me twice how I was doing, I'd be like, sorry, fam, here you are, here's my grief. <laughs> Um, so, like, being very open about it is something that's really helped me. I mean, my whole album that I'm writing right now, uh, Yasmin, is is about her and it's about community healing and grief and what you do with all of those feelings. Um, and, and that song that you played before, Imagine If You Were Here, is uh, the first song that I wrote for that album, um, just about, you know, I, it's a song for, for people who grieve in general, just remembering the people that we've lost. I mean, that song has a different meaning for me now that I, I know a bit more of the, the background to that song. Mm. Yeah, that's really powerful. In your previous answer, you spoke about the activism that you're also involved in there on Gadigal land. What's happening over there at the moment or what has been happening? Yeah, well, I was really, really sick in the scene um, when I first moved and when I was um, and especially... I don't know, 2018, 2019, I was at you know, absolutely every rally, playing at every one that I could. I played at the women's marches for years in a row and refugee rallies, Black Lives Matter stuff. Um, when Yasmin passed away, I definitely needed to take a step back from activism. I, am, I feel a lot, and I feel a lot of people's pain, and I really put myself in the situation that all of these people are feeling all over the world with all of the things that we have to cope with on the daily. And I couldn't keep putting myself in these positions of pain while I was struggling so much. So um, I kind of stepped back a little bit, but definitely um, within the last, you know, half a year to a year, I've been stepping back into the scene, a little, like kind of dipping my toes back in. Um, it's mostly just, uh, just the big rallies that have been going on. Um, you know, we had the um, March for Justice recently. That was that was for um, women, non-binary people, trans women in um, in Sydney and all over Australia. And I, I think that was, um, went really well. We've got our Trans Day of Disability coming up as well. I mean, there's always so much going on in community and so much that needs help. It's, it's almost difficult to, to pinpoint what... Um, what <laughs> what I've been doing because there's, you know, there's always this rally to go to and this thing to share and, and this person that needs donations. And, you know, you're just, you're just in it all the time. I feel like so much of my life is activism, but I don't even really notice it anymore. On that, what, what can you tell me about the community healing and the building of you know, a strong sense of community there, like around the movements for equality and social justice. How has that been like for you? You mentioned the, you know, the community healing when your partner passed away and how a lot of people were involved in there. Does it extend further than that? What have you found has been, what has been something really great about it for you? I feel like because, because my person is inherently political, like being black, being queer, being trans, um, I I don't really get to walk through the world and not assume a political lifestyle because my very existence is political because there are going to be people in offices that don't like that I'm a lesbian, that don't like that I want them to use my they-them pronouns, that don't like that I'm black and will, you know, ask for certain rights, you know, like not being arrested and all of these sorts of things. There's people in the world that, are, that don't agree with my very existence. So it's hard to pinpoint down and say, you know, this, this community activism or that community activism has helped me. It's just that we simply have bonded and formed a life around fighting for our lives. And that, you know, <laughs> is cold activism, but it's also just our lives. And it's so true. Our, our very existence as queer people is, is a political act in itself and to be visible. I mean, this is what this whole broadcast is about, you know, visibility and being mm. out there. I mean, that itself, you know, and not everyone has that opportunity uh, in countries around the world where <clears throat> being queer or being trans is, is actually dangerous. The, Absolutely. I, um, my home country of Tanzania, mm. um, it, it's illegal to be gay there. Don't even, 
think I don't even think about going home and presenting as trans. Like I go home, I simply put myself back in the closet and then I come back to Sydney where it's safe. That's so intense. I'm sorry that has to be your experience for you, but that, that seems to be something that's probably an experience for many people when they go back to their hometowns. I mean, when I go mm. back to, you know, my folks' place, you know, in real suburbia, Sydney, mm. you know, you tone it down a bit so you don't, like, get heckled on the street <laughs> when you're just going to get milk. I mean, I get it. I mean, you know, it's, I otherwise I'll be that. safe. But, yeah, let's look at the redefinition of our queer identities when a lot of the time our, our voices and our visibility is ignored or silenced because we're viewed as ungovernable, because we're going against normativity, and usually our identity is erased. <clears throat> and you mentioned that through uh, like colonising practices. So how do you think mm. that we can redefine this state straightism that um, occurs against queer people and queer identities and so forth? Just more queer people in power. It's like women's health issues and POC race issues. Just hire more women, hire more queer people, hire more black people to speak on the issues that actually affect us. No more of these dinosaur white men standing behind their ancient ideals. Like last year, we saw a real shift in the world that actually had a massive conversation about race with the BLM movement raging all over the world. We need more of that. We need uproar, upheaval, and fucking outrage. More queer black people in political office. More allies speaking out against the system that kills us. I mean, also simply, we could just throw a whole, throw away the whole system and try again. <laughs> I mean, that that would be great, and I do agree. <laughs> yeah, you know, having more people in those positions of, in those really visible positions that can sort of make make a difference, make a, a, a headway, make sort of a a pathway for these more resistive movements and these more sort of radical leftish movements. I mean, that'd be incredible. So, Absolutely. I suppose just to end with, I wanted to ask what has been a positive outcome for you with dealing with these different aspects of your identity. So today we've spoken about, you know, decolonizing practices, um, you know, your interaction between uh, POC and, uh, you know, white communities, but also, you know, dealing with grief and, and mental health. And how has that helped you sort of make this identity of yourself and, and be who you are? A few different things. I guess re-grief and trauma. Um, I, uh, I, I mentioned I've been living with mental illnesses since I was quite young. Um, something this awful, like truly awful happening to you, it means, meant that I kind of literally had to hit bottom and, you know, I don't know, I spiraled out when Yasmin passed away. And I really hit the, the bottom period of my life and I, you know, woke up in hospital one day and I was like, is this what I want my life to look at like? Is this what Yasmin would want for me? Fuck no, of course not. And I really had this big kind of, you need to turn your life around moment. Um, I checked myself in hospital. I got myself more well and kind of spent my life trying to fight the pain. And through that, I think I've, overall gained a better sense of self. I get I gained a better sense of responsibility and um how much my my voice is needed in the world, not just for trans queer people, um, but literally for, for my family, for my twin sister, for um for my siblings, for my for my parents, you know, I can't just vanish off the face of the earth. It's 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 not possible. Um, and so like being with, when I hit that moment, I realized that I needed to come out properly as non-binary. So I've done that now and I am out and proud. I talk about being black. I talk about being queer and there's so many positive things that come with that. Like, I can't even tell you, I think the biggest thing is like, I can wear whatever, whatever I want. I can't tell you how often um, as a child, I'd turn up to something wearing masks. I'd turn up to something wearing something mask and get asked to go change. And it put a burden on my younger self. Leaving the house became impossible. And clothes are something that it's meant to be like the first thing in your day. It's uncomplicated. But to wear something, coming out of non-binary has been kind of integral to finding my comfort in the world. 
I started binding and my clothes fit so, so well and I feel amazing and I feel beautiful and handsome. And it's just something that I never really got to do. Because when I was like eight years old, I used to watch these like makeover shows and wish somebody would come and save me from this daily dysphoria and wardrobe choices. And I don't know, I look at myself now and I didn't think that I'd be the hero in my own story, saving myself from the confines of traditional gender roles and traditional any roles. Um, I just kind of, I kind of saved myself and was able to, to move forward and really, really be myself. And by being myself, I, I can see that other people are more comfortable being their self. That's a really beautiful answer. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, thank you so much for joining me on Queer in the Air and for 3CR's Binary Busting Broadcast. Really appreciate your voice. And if people want to get more information on your work, you can head to facebook.com forward slash Malaika Music and also via your Instagram handle at Malaika. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, my twin sister and I have just started our own podcast called Womb for Improvement. So if you want to keep hearing me chat about stuff like this, I'll be doing it with my other half. Awesome. Take care. I'll speak with you soon. Thank you so much, honey. And that was Malaika Mfalme, a queer non-binary mixed race, African-Australian person of colour and singer-songwriter living on Gadigal land, speaking about their queer and cultural identities in the context of Trans Day of Visibility. And I'd like to also thank my previous guest, Hunter Dillon, for speaking about their trans identity and how it intersects with their illness, disability and also representation of their identities Really appreciate Hunter's time as well. So thanks again for listening to 3CR, Queer in the Air. Have a great afternoon. See you next time. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.